This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. The content in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. CNIB does not make guarantees about the comprehensiveness or accuracy of the content. CNIB and the podcast participants assume no responsibility for how you use the information provided. If you require legal advice about a specific issue, contact a lawyer or community legal clinic. Okay, well, hello and welcome to the Know Your Rights podcast series. My name is Jacob Cherendoff, and I'm the host of this series brought to you by the CNIB. And as the name suggests, the, the intention of this series is for you to know your rights. We're going to cover a broad spectrum of topics. And today I'm joined by Lisa Feldstein of Lisa Feldstein Law and Melanie Andrevik, who is the clinical director at OSR Clinical Services and a registered psychotherapist. Today we're going to talk about um, health-related issues um, from kind of a human rights perspective and some issues that some of you may have experienced, um, you know, from filling out forms and not being the most accessible to staff who maybe don't understand your needs and also to um, visible and invisibility, invisible disabilities. So, Melanie, um, I know that you know, you've kind of experienced some of that yourself. Would you mind telling us a little bit about, you know, the type of um, discrimination that you may have experienced? Absolutely. So in all sectors, I I would have experienced some sort of discrimination. Many times I find that I'm uh, really great at advocating for myself, but every now and again, there's situations where I'm really taken aback and have a difficult time. Um, There was a particular situation at my ophthalmologist's office uh, that happened pretty recently that was quite difficult, which involved um, forms that were inaccessible and uh, just treatment that was really unexpected. So, you know, um, one thing I should kind of preface all of this with is um, I have a, a rare form of um, macular degeneration called Stargardt's disease. And um, Melanie, I know that, um, you know, it's challenging those forms that um, you can't see and to go and ask, um, you know, workers or people sitting in the the waiting room sometimes can be a a little bit intimidating. Um, You know, was this the first time that you've kind of experienced that thing or has this happened to you before? Unfortunately not. Um, This has been something that's happened to me in the past as well. Okay. And, you know, with the inaccessible um, font size on these forms, um, how did you kind of progress? Did you ask the staff to help? Did you ask, um, you know, anybody in the waiting room to help with you? So in this particular situation, luckily my husband was with me, so he was able to fill out the forms. And that is typically the workaround that I have is, you know, my husband is the one taking me to many appointments. So I have his help. But in some cases, if I'm dropped off or whatever the case may be, um, I'm usually comfortable enough to ask staff for help when forms are inaccessible. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, with this type of thing, what was the the kind of main thing that this was, you know, one something that kind of really stuck out to you as a as an issue for you at the ophthalmologist's uh, office? Well, can I tell the story from the top? Yeah, absolutely. Please. Okay. So it's kind of a twofold scenario. So it was two separate appointments and two appointments, which again, just, you know, really took me by surprise. So the first appointment I arrived with my husband and like I said, he helped me fill out the forms, which is pretty typical. Um, He left to go do whatever he needed to do. And I waited in the waiting room. Um, So when I was invited into the uh, examination room by the technician, I was asked to look forward into the machine. 
Um, so with Stargardt's disease, of course, I don't have any central vision. I only have peripheral vision. So looking straight ahead is, is basically impossible for me. Um, so I was instructed by the technician to look forward and I advised her, I'm looking forward as best as I can. And um, quite rudely, she said, well, try harder. So that was, you know, quite upsetting, but I did my best as I was instructed and that was that. So left the appointment, was pretty irritated by that, but you know, life goes on and it happens. So follow-up appointment after that was maybe a few weeks later. Um, arrived at my appointment, sat down in the waiting room and was invited now by a different technician from the first time um, into the examination room. So as is typical, I was asked to you know, look up at the letters and read what I could read so she could examine my acuity. Um, with my vision being as low as it is, the giant E is the only thing that I can see. Anything beyond that is uh, not visible for me. So she said, you know, go ahead and read what you can see. I told her I can see the big E. She said, next line, please. And I told her, oh, unfortunately, this is, this is all I can see. And she stopped what she was doing, turned her head and looked at me and said, really? You can't read the next line? And I said, nope, that's all I can see. And she snapped her fingers in front of my face and said, can you even see me? So that was understandably quite upsetting and quite shocking to me. And it was really surprising to me as well, not only her behavior, but my own reaction to it. Because like I said, typically, I'm really comfortable advocating for myself. I mean, it's been a lifelong journey of doing so, but I've gotten to a point in my life where most times I'm pretty comfortable advocating for myself and speaking up when I'm treated poorly or not accommodated. I think what was most upsetting about this particular situation is it was in such an unexpected place. You know, when I go renew my health card or if I'm at the store, it's, you know, unfortunately almost expected that people aren't going to really understand the scope of my disability. But at the ophthalmologist's office where, you know, I am treated for that very disability, um, I kind of go in with the expectation that they, to at least a greater degree than others, understand my needs. Um, so I think it was just very alarming to me and, uh, again, quite upsetting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so frustrating hearing um, that type of treatment, um, especially at an ophthalmologist's office, where I mean, presumably and presumably is uh, an assumption at this point. You're, the, the staff are aware of you know the the condition. And, um, you know, it's funny when you were talking about the big E, I'm in the same boat. I can't anything past that big E as far as, uh, as it can get. But, I mean, the, the, the reaction is just is challenging. And, you know, I, I'm, unfortunately, that seems to happen more often than not. And, you know, I guess at this point, I, I can only imagine, you know, how how you felt after that second experience at the same office. What was the response you took to that? Did you, you know, um, you know, speak to the doctor? Did you talk to the administration at the office? What were the next steps on your end? So sadly, in this situation, there weren't really any next steps. Ordinarily, again, um, and side note, especially because in the work that I do, I do work with a lot of people um, who have acquired disabilities. And, you know, a huge part of my role is helping them to um, not only get used to their new disabilities, but learn to advocate for themselves. So not only is it something that is personally incredibly important for me professionally, it is as well. So, you know, to my surprise, I, I didn't do anything. Ordinarily, I would have, you know, said to the doctor or complained to, you know, whoever was in charge. I just let it happen. And, you know, I, I grumbled about it and I was pretty mad about it after I left the appointment. But that was the end of it. Um, I haven't gone back to that doctor, to be honest. And um, at this point, I'm working under the care of my optometrist who, you know, they're amazing at that office and, and understand my needs. But 
Um, that's been my very unusual response to it. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's, yeah, really challenging to hear. But I think it's, it's common for a lot of people who feel that they were not treated fairly and perhaps even discriminated against to, you know, just have such a hard time um, with those, those next steps. And I mean, that draws right into the topic of, you know, what are our rights, um, you know, our human rights under this type of circumstance. So I, I don't know, Lisa, you know, is there anything that Melanie could have, you know, um, done or maybe understood or something that the, the office of the optometr- or ophthalmologist, um, you know, should be aware of in circumstances like this? Yeah, so I could go on for a while, so I'll start, and you may need to jump in or cut me off. So I'll start with a basic part of, it doesn't fall under human rights law, but health law, and this applies to all patients, so absolutely, there is a right to informed consent. So I didn't catch what was in those forms, what the content of those forms were, but sometimes the forms that healthcare providers have people fill out are actually consent documents, and depending what's in those forms, that may be seriously problematic if somebody can't uh, read what they are or understand what they are even due to a language barrier it's not always about disability so the right to informed consent is something all patients have when interacting with all healthcare providers in ontario for those who like to know the law it falls under the healthcare consent act the law actually tells us we all have a right to certain information about treatment so that is what are the risks side effects benefits alternatives um, what happens if I don't do this? And that could be like treatment like medication or, or a procedure or test that's being done as well. So that's sort of one bucket of rights that applies to everybody listening, regardless of whether they have a disability. Um, and so that the law there doesn't talk about how that uh, informed consent has to take place. It can be in a form, but the person signing it has to actually understand the information and have the opportunity to ask questions. Uh, informed consent can also come through a conversation. It does not have to be documented. So one thing I flag is if, if any of those forms had been uh, consent forms, the duty is on the healthcare professional to make sure the patient provides true, meaningful informed consent. So just signing without actually understanding the material and having that opportunity to have those risks, benefits, side effects, et cetera, all of that covered um, is depriving patients of their right to provide valid informed consent. Yeah, that's that's right. Interesting you say that. Um, I didn't know. I mean, obviously, you kind of sign a consent form, but in the kind of era that we are with all of the, you know, Apple iTunes agreements and things like that, we kind of just give um, consent. Don't really ever take a second to, to think about that. And I know personally, um, I've signed um, medical forms, probably not the uh, the smartest thing without reading them because I was, I just didn't want to bother the administration staff to read me, you know, those little, uh, those long pages with tiny font. Um, so yeah, really, really interesting. And I think really just good information there. Um, you know, anything else that would be kind of um, relevant to, to this, um, particularly to Melanie's situation? Mm-hmm. There's more. And I do want to say one thing, because I know advocating for yourself can sometimes be intimidating. There's something psychological for a lot of us. Advocating for ourselves is very different than advocating for someone else. So on the informed consent side, it actually it benefits the healthcare provider. If, if they're asked to do it, um, it actually is in their interest, because sometimes there are lawsuits where consent wasn't provided. And if it wasn't provided, the healthcare provider can be found negligent, for example. So it really is in their interest as well to make sure that law is being followed, because otherwise, if they are challenged later, 
they can face a lawsuit, they can owe money to another side if they lose. Um, so for those who are sort of unsure about advocating, remember it actually can help them too, in a way. Um, in terms of other aspects of the law, so yes, lots more to cover. Um, one is just there's the basic right to receive the equal treatment, same as anyone else, regardless of discrimination. And this is where we get more into human rights law. So in Ontario, I'm sure you've heard of it, we have a law called the Human Rights Code. And it's a very, very important law. The Human Rights Code is really, it's on a bit of a pedestal. It's treated in, in some ways as more important than other laws that we have in our province. And a key part of the Human Rights Code is we all have the right to be free from discrimination. And that's discrimination on the basis of disability, as well as age, race, gender, sexual orientation, and so forth. It's the same law that applies um, based on the circumstances. And that right to be free from discrimination, what that segues into in that law, is we all have a right to be accommodated. So if someone has a disability, they, there's a duty on the healthcare provider to accommodate. And I'm, I can say a little bit more about what that means, but basically that duty to accommodate means they may have to do things differently, bend, bend their policies or procedures, um, do something that's custom for the patient, even if that means it's inconvenient for them or they have to spend a little bit of money, that's actually their legal obligation. That duty to accommodate is a pretty high bar. The only time they don't have to accommodate is when it reaches a point of what's called undue hardship, which is a very legal jargon phrase, but it basically means it's very, very difficult or very expensive, like putting an elevator into a very old building, some small business that, that would put them out of business. They may not have to do that, but some hardship can be required actually by law. Just out of curiosity, because I think that that's a point where a lot of people are unclear as to what is what is a reasonable accommodation. Um, and just to kind of sidestep from, you know, the, the specific situation, I mean, how do, you know, how does someone deem what is a reasonable accommodation uh, for themselves? No, that's a fully loaded question. But it's such a great question. <laughs> it's such a great question. My answer is going to be such a lawyer answer. <laughs> Um, because the law doesn't tell us. This is where the law is helpful and challenging. It's, the law has to be written in a flexible way because the, our legislators, they can't write every scenario into our law. So, so much of our law is written in this kind of ambiguous way intentionally, and then only when a matter is brought to court, a judge ultimately decides what was or was not reasonable. And to tell you how um, how you know that there's differences of opinion is that this is how there are lawsuits. There's at least two sides with very different opinions in these kinds of cases of what constituted a reasonable accommodation. So how can someone know? I mean, if there's no money involved and, and using your common sense, it seems like not a big deal. I think you can rely on a little common sense if you're not even asking for money or, or it's just a few minutes of time. I think to me, that's a no brainer. That's a reasonable accommodation, but undue hardship is a very high bar. It may be that organizations actually do have to really go out of their way and spend some money. That may be a reasonable accommodation as well. But I can't give you a bright line test because um, it actually comes down to each circumstance. What are the means of that business? What are the needs of that individual? And just a, just a question, just to put you on the spot here, Lisa, do you think that that's a question of the Human Rights Code being held to this kind of higher standard, as you mentioned before? Or is that just because it's such a uncharted territory as to all the types of accommodations um, that, you know, are constantly changing as uh, the world evolves, both technology uh, from a technological perspective and, a, um, you know, from the way we interact in society. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably tr 
true. As, as technology evolves, what accommodation looks like evolves. How somebody would have been accommodated when the code first came out is probably different for some disabilities than what accommodation might look like now. And as technology gets better and cheaper, we can probably expect that to change. So there have been a number of lawsuits over the years, but they really are unique to the individuals. Um, but I think what's something that's quite helpful for listeners to keep in mind is it's a high bar. So if they're not sure, ask, have a conversation. The, the obligation is on that organization to do some due diligence, not an off the cuff, no, sorry, we can't do that. Um, they have to try. They have to try quite hard. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for kind of uh, answering my my on the spot questions here. But, you know, coming back to, um, you know, Melanie's story here, you know, is this, you know, discrimination? Um, you know, how does, you know, where is that kind of line? Is this just somebody, you know, having very poor etiquette? Um, does that kind of infringe on, you know, the, the rights from a healthcare perspective? I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Okay, so there's a few things we can unpack there. In terms of whether it is or isn't discrimination, it's kind of like what I said with the reasonable accommodation. A lot of things, in order to say definitively, it ultimately gets said determined by a, a judge or the human rights tribunal was or was it not. Somebody might say, I've been discriminated against. They bring a case and they might lose. It could be found they weren't discriminated against. So it's language that we use, but kind of the final say does, and many cases are not litigated, um, but the final say really goes to, you know, it's someone with that legal authority. But was this discrimination? So there's a few things that I, um, to unpack. So one part is the rudeness. Could that be perceived as discrimination? Potentially. Sometimes though, what the case is poor bedside manner, and when that happens, that's where there's not legal rights attached to it. Sometimes healthcare professionals are jerks um, or busy or ignorant. And those don't necessarily mean that they're legal issues. They're patient care issues, but they're not always legal issues. But, but your language of that fine line is absolutely true. In some of these cases, it becomes a matter of, um, it, it becomes difficult to know because how a patient perceives it and how an individual intended it can be very different things. Of course, human rights law, though, is, is not actually about intention. It's about effect, um, like the impact on an individual. So someone with good intentions may actually still be found to have discriminated, even if in their heart and in their mind, they thought they were doing the right thing. Uh, the part that stood out to me as most likely um, as a human rights issue, though, is the inaccessible form and the accommodation around that. Because to me, it seems like there's some very easy, reasonable accommodations. So having a partner help can be fine. Um, but in some cases, somebody may not want a family member involved with their health care. Sometimes some aspects of health care are very sensitive or private, or someone doesn't have a, a spouse, maybe it's their mother, and they'd rather not have their mother involved in a very sensitive medical appointment. And so no one should be in a position where they must involve a family member and disclose their personal health information to a relative. That right to keep their health information confidential should be respected if they want it to. Uh, and that with consent, family can be involved, it's fine, but that right should never be undermined because of the disability. Um, we need to find creative ways in these situations, whether that's an interview with the health professional, they fill it out, making the forms accessible, that would be my suggestion, sending the forms in uh, advance so that the patient can find someone else they trust. But a lot of it will come down to being creative and speaking. Um, Healthcare professionals need to speak with the patient directly to find out what, what do they want, what do they need. It doesn't have to be one size fits all. 
Yeah, definitely. Melanie, have you um, come across any other offices? You mentioned your optometrist is taking um, kind of care of you on that front. Um, do you find that they're more accommodating and um, kind of more empathetic to your situation? Absolutely. So um, like Lisa mentioned, one of the strategies that they've utilized is taking me into a private room and filling out the forms with me, verbally reading out what's on there and me providing my responses. Yeah, I, I, I totally, I think that's fantastic. But, you know, from my experience as well, um, yeah, it's it's challenging. Um, usually I do have someone with me. Um, I find, and maybe you find this too, Melanie, that if it's um, on a tablet or anything like that, there's some amazing accessible um, technology and kind of Zoom functions um, that make it usable. Um, I know myself, I, you know, I like to be independent. I don't like to rely on others to, um, you know, just complete daily tasks for me. So I, I, you know, I'm somebody who wants to be able to um, have that equal playing field at all kind of levels of life and finding these accessible, um, you know, resources, whether it be through enlarged font or um, digitization or the, uh, you know, staff member asking you the questions and filling it out on your behalf. I think is um, unfortunately not as common as some might think it would be. It's such a uh, an easy and quick solution to this to to level the playing field for everybody. You know, Lisa, I don't know if you've come across um, offices or you know situations in your professional work that um, have had to kind of expand into uh, accommodating in these types of areas. Is that something that you've uh, ever come across? Well, it's now something that's increasingly becoming a requirement. So I'm sure some of your listeners have heard of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, often called the AODA for short. And it's basically law that's been rolled out in sections over a number of years, starting with government, bigger businesses, and then trickling down to smaller businesses. So there's different rolling start dates for different organizations. But essentially, this is a law where the purpose is to have businesses and government become more accessible so that it's not an option anymore. And it started years ago with customer service standards that address things like bringing service animals. Um, and it's just been rolling out over a number of years. So it's we're, we're shifting from not having anything in place to having more awareness and more requirements with the, the government having the power to actually issue fines if organizations are not uh, being accessible as they're required to be. Yeah. And just to kind of sway the, the conversation slightly here is Something that I'd like to kind of cover um, just briefly in this episode is, you know, invisible um, disability or, or difference or challenge. Um, you know, I know that a lot of people have um, psychological kind of um, disease that, you know, does require accommodation, however, isn't visible to, you know, frontline staff. How, um, you know, how can healthcare organizations um, address that um, proactively to be accessible um, so that, you know, it's not necessary for the patient to disclose information that maybe they don't want to or aren't comfortable with up front. Yeah, and I think that's a, a, a great thing to be thinking about it from a proactive perspective. So it's not always on a patient having to bring something up after they've run into to barriers. So I think one way is healthcare professionals putting it either in their website a welcome package, a different kind of first touch points with the organization to invite people to reach out and say, if you have a disability that needs to be accommodated, let us know so we can figure that out. And so just making it less intimidating by making it like an invitation um, so that 
feeling a little bit nervous around and you know advocating for oneself hopefully that can reduce that because it's sending a message that our door is open uh, because the reality is not every healthcare organization will have everything in place to accommodate every disability or no they will not necessarily know does this software work for certain types of vision impairment so sometimes it, it really just it I'm, I, I, it's exhausting to say over and over but it it, it it does sometimes fall on patients to keep saying well did you can you do this can you get this one hey there's this software it's actually free or very inexpensive and it will help your other patients so it does often put patients in that position of educator but i think healthcare professionals setting that tone from the outset uh, that they're really open to learn to learn and want to do better um, at least creates a much more positive atmosphere and one where hopefully people feel empowered to advocate for themselves and Lisa, I think you make an amazing point there too, because I think what that accomplishes is it empowers both the patient and the healthcare provider to feel able to collaborate on providing accommodations. Because I think that many healthcare providers are afraid to you know, either ask or get it wrong, and many people are unable to ask for what they need. So I think that that you know, marriage of those two is, is a wonderful point. Yeah, and you know, Mally, in your, um, in your practice, um, are, are there any kind of, um, I guess, proactive approaches that you're taking for your patients so that, you know, they don't need to be asking you for um, different accommodations. You'd mentioned that a lot of your um, patients do have different forms of disability. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, many of the people that we see are dealing with psychological injuries, physical injuries, traumatic brain injury, or, you know, a combination thereof. So it's our standard protocol for, you know, with their first contact with our office, it's, you know, automatic that we say, if you require assistance with any of your forms, the intake, anything that we have as the preliminary paperwork, let us know. Um, so just as Lisa mentioned, that invitation has gone a long way where people feel so much more comfortable and confident saying, you know what? Yeah, I do need some help. And it, it starts that conversation. I think that's, uh, it's, it's great to hear and, you know, setting that standard um, for different offices, um, you know, be it, um, you know, up optometry, ophthalmologists, psychotherapists, all aspects of health. I think having that, you know, really open and welcoming response for everybody, no matter what their needs is so, so important and such a, a warm welcome, especially with health, um, you know, people feeling comfortable to disclose to professionals um, why they're coming in is just going to help uh, everybody in the long, long run. And that starts with um, you know, having uh, a very open uh, line of communication for people to, uh, you know, get the, the help they need um, in order to be at a level playing field or um, to, to feel as equal. So, I mean, I guess to, to wrap this up, you know, Lisa, is there any information or kind of advice that you might give to any of the listeners um, on getting more information or things that they should consider, um, you know, when they feel that they've perhaps been discriminated or just general kind of thoughts around um, the kind of health law area. Sure. So I can start with a few resources. One is Pro Bono Ontario and the Arches Le Arch Legal Disability. These are two different resources where somebody can actually call and get some free legal advice if they feel they've been discriminated against. And in some cases, Arch will actually bring lawsuits. Um, but sometimes legal advice is all that people need. So there are ways to get free legal advice for sure. Um, but in terms of general kind of strategic advice, I have a few ideas. So one is to let people know the squeaky wheel gets the grease. <laughs> I've just seen it so many times. Sometimes if you don't ask, you don't get, and you do have to be a little bit 
persistent, but it really makes a difference in our healthcare system. And I mean that across all contexts, the patient who hasn't been seen or they're advocating for a family member, it, it makes a difference to be squeaky. <laughs> um, also, healthcare professionals have regulatory bodies. There's colleges, and I don't mean post-secondary, but colleges that give out licenses and can take them away and can suspend licenses. And so they do not want complaints. They don't want trouble with the body that gives them their license to do their work. They don't want to be brought to the Human Rights Tribunal. So they're, you know, I never suggest starting with a threat. I always think start nice. Um, but, there, but there is a legal context where there can be there can be legal consequences for the health professionals that are not um, doing what they are required to do. So sometimes those end up needing to be mentioned. Um, it's never where I would suggest someone start, um, but if they're having a very, very difficult time, it's, it's good to even just know they exist because sometimes psychologically, if someone is struggling to advocate for themselves, just knowing that they, knowing their rights and knowing there are places they could escalate and get free legal advice along the way can be um, helpful and people feeling confident to to speak up for themselves. Yeah, I mean, those, those resources, I think, are invaluable, um, especially in a, a circumstance um, like this. Um, you know, one thing, uh, maybe we'll save this for another episode, is uh, I've experienced my own um, kind of uh, human rights issue that I'm currently going through, and I was totally unaware of um, those resources um, that you've mentioned since kind of getting involved in this project. I've learned about them, but uh, for anybody listening, um, you know, please look into that. Um, even if it's just, uh, I love the word proactive, proactively uh, to know to know your rights, I think is is great to always be informed and educated so that you can understand um, how to, you know, to, to thrive as an individual and to make sure that you're not, um, you know, being discriminated or treated unfairly. So I guess, Melanie, you know, given um, the circumstance, and I, I do want to just thank you for sharing your story. I know that, um, you know, it's, it's challenging and hard, um, you know, to, to share that. So thank you. And I hope all of you guys really appreciate, um, you know, kind of hearing this experience firsthand, because I can tell you from my own experience that this is extremely common, um, not only in health offices, but um, in all sorts of, you know, businesses and organizations. Um, is there anything that you would tell um, our listeners um, who might have experienced similar situations? Yeah, first off, um, you know, I'm happy to be sharing these stories. I think it's through sharing these stories that we're able to kind of support one another and, um, you know, make some changes. So you're welcome for that. Uh, secondly, as far as what advice that I was, would give if, you know, even I had a do-over or if somebody else had a situation that they run into like this, speak up. Um, I think that that's probably the biggest thing in our, our you know, what we're most equipped with is our voice and our ability to speak up when something is wrong and uh, stand up for our rights. Yeah, um, so that seems to be the general consensus um, from both of you guys is uh, be the squeaky wheel. Um, don't be afraid to, to stand up and to advocate for yourself. If you don't, then you're, nothing is going to move forward. That's the whole purpose we're speaking up uh, about this um, is so that you guys can be informed to know your rights, to understand some situations um, that you've probably experienced or may experience. And we really want to um, provide a platform where it's okay to speak up. It's okay to, to understand. And we encourage you to, to, to learn about 
um, how to protect yourself to to be treated as an equal. When um, when you speak up, you are paving the way for other people too. So I I would remind people too when you're when you are suggesting making a suggestion about how something can be done better or differently or or disability can be accommodated, you are now educating that organization or health professional. So the next person who comes along does have a better time. So it, it really is, it's it's important for making a difference for other people who come next. Absolutely. Yeah. Great, great point, Lisa. So guys, speak up, make change, and we'll see you on the next episode. Take care. For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.